Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our discussion of overconfidence. That's right. Uh, if you did not listen to the previous episode, do go back and listen to that episode because we're going to lay the groundwork. We're going to discuss overconfidence and hubris and mythology in uh, human histories uh, and then get into the psychology of it and what various psychological studies have revealed and continue to reveal about the, the nature of overconfidence and how we can divide this sort of amorphous concept of overconfidence uh, out into categories that can be more easily studied and understood. That's right. Now, in the last episode, one of the main things we talked about was this huge new uh, review of the scientific literature on something known as the better than average effect, which is the tendency for people to rate themselves as better than average with respect to their peers on all kinds of stuff. Uh, One classic example is that something like 93 percent of people think they are a better than average driver. Mm -hmm. So if you're if you're listening to this as you drive, eyes back on the road right. and make sure you use this turn signals. Turn signals stay, save lives. Turn signals let other drivers and pedestrians know what you intend to do. Even if you think you're a great driver, drive like you're less good than you are and it will make you a better driver. Drive like you can't see all the other cars and pedestrians around you because sometimes you cannot. Drive like you're driving a murder <laughs> weapon because <laughs> potentially you are. It's quite true. All right. Now, one of the things we talked about in the last episode was uh, a paper from 2017 by Don A. Moore and Derek Schatz called The Three Faces of Overconfidence, which which actually broke – overconfidence down into three distinct categories of, of bias or misperception. And uh, and we, we talked about those a little bit last time. We're going to be exploring more of what that paper had to say and its critiques of overconfidence research, specifically with reference to these three types of overconfidence. And as a brief refresher, the three types are overestimation, overplacement, and overprecision. Overestimation is thinking that you're better than you are and this would be with reference to some kind of, uh, you know, objective measure out in the world. So if you think that you are taller than you are, you know, if you think that you can jump higher than you can, Mm -hmm. if you think that you would get a better score on a test than you actually could, that's overestimation. The next one, overplacement, is similar but instead it's comparing yourself with other people. So the better than average effect would be an example of overplacement. It's, you know, thinking you are better than average compared to your peers at some task. Or it would be thinking that, you know, that you work harder than other people or thinking that you are smarter than other people. Of course, with the if it's overconfidence, meaning that those are not actually accurate assessments. And then finally, the, the other one would be overprecision, which is being too sure that you know the truth. Uh, again, this, this might be called epistemic overconfidence. It's just being too certain that your beliefs are correct. Now, to get into uh, Moore and Schatz's paper from 2017, one of the questions that they address is – what actually drives some of these different uh, effects as, as they are manifested? So they, they start with overestimation. What causes us to, say, think we would get a better score on a test than we do or to think we have more money in the bank than we do? A common answer that people give to this is the idea of wishful thinking. 
it would feel good if this were true, therefore I believe it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the authors don't think that this uh, explanation is very plausible and they offer several problems with it. And we can interrogate these, maybe disagree with them as we go on. But first of all, they say, you know, self-delusion is demonstrably maladaptive. For example, a tendency toward wishful thinking about the safety of kissing sharks uh, with tongue is, is not a trait that the environment will tend to select for. People overconfident about their academic abilities will tend not to study and actually do worse. People who believe themselves invulnerable will take risks that sometimes get them killed. This might seem obvious, but there is actually plenty of research on this. I mean, people who are overconfident about their abilities do face a lot of downsides when those abilities are put to the test. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, one example from literature that comes to mind is that of Macbeth, yeah. uh, who uh, believes himself protected by prophecy uh, and then, of course, uh, uh, snuffs it. Because of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then again, I think, okay, so it is true that these people will face a lot of downside. But then again, people do engage in self-destructive, self-deluded behavior all the time. I mean, this is a common feature of human life. Yeah. We, I mean, for instance, we were just uh, recently talking about the placebo effect on yeah. our, uh, our movie episode where we talked about the fly and, uh, and about the possibility that the placebo effect is, is basically due to uh, – you know, this innate uh, tendency towards self-delusion that uh, may very well be adaptive, in, at least in this scenario, mm -hmm. um, where, yeah, it, we we benefit from being able to believe something is going to work and and uh, and, and, and experiencing at, at least a small physical benefit from it, uh, like a, a small curative benefit from it. And then, um, you know, I also can't help but think that, you know, self-delusion – entails far more than just overconfidence. It also entails all manner of, of paranoia. And there is a strong case for the adaptive nature of, say, making a type 1 error in cognition, a false positive, the belief that the rustle in the tall grass is that of a tiger when it's not. Mm -hmm. uh, because if you make the type 2 uh, <laughs> error, you're more likely to be eaten by the tiger, right? Right, yeah. Having accurate information about the world is actually very useful and having inaccurate information can kill you. Yeah. Uh, but but I'm not so much you know trying to, to disagree with the maladaptive uh, self delusion argument uh, uh, that we mentioned earlier, but but rather you know to point out that the human experience is is rife with self delusion. So might a dash of overconfidence, even in the form of overestimation, serve to balance out this alchemy of uh, you know of our perception of reality? Uh, for example, say you have a karaoke singer. Granted, karaoke is very low stakes. Right. Uh, but uh, but it could involve social embarrassment, right, uh, right. which you could fear would lead to ostracism. And that's actually one of the most powerful negative motivators on human behavior. Right. And, but again, karaoke is also one of these things where like sometimes it's cool to do it badly. So this is not a perfect example. But say you have a karaoke singer that imbibes in a little liquid courage before taking the microphone, as uh -huh. most karaoke uh, participants are, are, are want to do. Uh, but yeah, they, they get a little liquid courage because they know they don't have the greatest voice in the world and, and they feel a little awkward getting up there, but, but they, they know that a little bit of booze-induced overconfidence might help matters. I think you're exactly right there. And this it's funny to start here because I think while the authors make tons of good points, this is one of the ones they make that I might disagree with the most. I think that there are antagonistic adaptations in human behavior. One pressure might favor having an accurate picture of the world, assessing things in a clear and accurate way, while a cross-pressure favors self-deception, especially self-deception in the form of overconfidence. For example, you might be more likely 
likely to survive if you have accurate assessments of your own abilities, but you might be more likely to take big risks with potentially big rewards if you overestimate your abilities. Uh, or self-delusional overconfidence could be adaptive because it helps us persuade or even deceive other people about our worth. Yeah, uh, you know, ultimately, yeah, you have to you have to believe in yourself. <laughs> if you know other people are not going to believe in you for you, right? Right. Uh, I mean, we we talked in the last episode about how it's probably not a coincidence that you really often notice overconfidence in people who occupy high status leadership roles. Right. How'd they get there? I mean, it's not hard to imagine the overconfidence helped them get to that point. Yeah, and it's a sometimes it's a fun, sometimes terrifying exercise to like. If, if you uh, if you engage with people like this, and then when you realize, oh wait, they're just really overconfident. Yeah, they don't. They're they're not to say they're not skilled, but when you realize that well, sometimes is, they're not. <laughs> sometimes they're not, but sometimes you really, you you realize, oh, there there is this gap between ability and uh, and and uh, and what they're they're saying they're going to deliver on, or what they are estimating the future will consist of. Yeah, I mean, I. It, it is kind of shocking how often in life you will suddenly come to a realization that, you know, the boss or the leader or whatever's main skill is BSing. Yeah. Like that they can just go out there and wing it in a way that you would be too timid and reserved to do. Right. Now, this idea of, you know, accurate assessments playing into our, you know, our own abilities, uh, I, I couldn't help but think of the film Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid uh-huh. in this scenario uh, because it, it really as it relates to two specific points in the film. Uh, one is the, uh, the whole would you make that jump if you didn't have to uh, uh-huh. scenario where they're being tracked, they're being hunted, and they've come to this, uh, this, this cliff uh, overlooking this river. And they realize that if they jump – if they jump off this cliff and they land in that river and they don't die, they'll get away because the stakes are such that those pursuing them will not follow them. They will not make that jump if they don't need to. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, uh, so, so there's there's that. And then at the very end, there's kind of a going out the old-fashioned way, guns a-blazing scenario where they're cornered. They're going to slowly be killed and they decide to just go for it, to just bust out shooting and just fight. Right. So, so the incentives, like the evolutionary incentives on a brain generating accurate pictures of the world versus self-deluded overconfidence, those could very well be just the contrast between a low-risk, low-reward strategy versus a high-risk, high-reward strategy. Right, yeah. So, yeah, the first example, definitely high-risk, high-reward. Yeah. Like it was pretty much their only – their best option for survival at that point. And they took it and in the film they survive. At the end of the film, it's pretty much implied that they die. Yeah. Uh, but, but at the same time, it's, it still seems to be their best option. If not their best option for surviving, it's kind of at least a, like the psychological best option. You know, mm-hmm. are we going to stay in here and die like rats or are we going to, you know, just burst out there and, uh, you know, die like heroes in a film that is named after them, you know? Right. Man, that's a great movie. I want to go back and watch I haven't yeah, seen really it in good. years. Oh, yeah. I remember, except the I mean, the ending's kind of a downer, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 surprisingly sweet for a, for a violent outlaw movie. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a good one. And, and you know, I mentioned Macbeth earlier in the whole idea of you know draping himself in prophecy and using that to to uh, to to uh, pump himself up. But uh, that does bring up bring to mind the role of religion in all of this. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, certainly a lot of the things that religion can do to your 
estimation of ability or, you know, uh, you know, it can revolve around, you know, the survivability of, of the soul, for example, you know, mm-hmm. and like what will happen if I act a certain way in life? Yeah, and I, I think there could possibly be cross pressures going the same way with that. I mean, that that there are some evolutionary drawbacks and some some advantages to it. Right. And then, of course, that's not to say that re- religious motivations, uh, you know, exist free of social um, oh, of course not. because yeah. you know there's going to be a rich interplay uh, between those, uh, and that's you know that's something that comes up, for instance, in um, when you look at studies of say suicide uh, uh, bombers. Mm-hmm. You know, where on one hand you can look at it and just go with the, the simple scenario of oh, here's a person who believes that if they die doing this act, then they'll be rewarded in the afterlife. Mm-hmm. But then behind that, there's a whole social scenario as well yeah. of of other humans. You know, telling them that this is the thing to do, et cetera. Yeah, motivations are, are a, a rich stew of many different influences. I mean, it's usually hard to nail down a single inciting incident or cause right. to, that led people down a path in life. And in fact, I think a lot of times even when people do that with themselves and say this was the reason I became a whatever or I did whatever, I think a lot of times they're oversimpl- they're, they're wrong about themselves. Yeah. So basically, self-delusion, we're all just houses of cards, <laughs> just ready to be knocked down at any point. Well, but there's another way of putting it. Now, one thing you and I could be getting wrong here is if we're talking properly about self-delusion or some other type of, of bias or like misperception in the brain, because the authors here, they're saying, OK, self-delusion specifically – Maybe self-delusion implies that there's there's a sort of transformation going on somewhere in the brain. Like the brain gets accurate information about the world and then just somehow presents it to the conscious mind in a skewed way. Hmm. The, the authors here think that especially if you're talking about wishful thinking as the, the brand of self-delusion, uh, you know – getting false perceptions about the world in order to feel better, they think that doesn't really work from a like unconscious mind to conscious mind model uh, because emotions and moods also seem to emerge from the unconscious mind, not from the conscious mind. Uh, But then there's another thing they go to, which is that they argue the empirical evidence for true self-deception in overestimation is actually kind of weak and kind of mixed. Why would this be? Well, first of all, they say it's hard to separate true self-deception from attempts to deceive others, including the researchers. Mm. So how can you tell – when somebody truly overestimates their own traits or abilities versus they just tell you that they think their traits or abilities are better than they are. In a lot of cases, both would manifest equally as outward overconfidence. Uh, Now, you can come up with some methodologies and some tests to try to get around this, like you can make people bet sums of money that would – where the outcome of the bet would be dependent on how good they actually are at a task or something. Uh, But in a lot of cases, they say it's hard to tell the difference between true uh, self-deception and just attempts to deceive other people. Another thing they point out is that you don't actually have to be deceiving yourself to overestimate your abilities. You could be genuinely completely ignorant of the fact that you're not as good as you think you are. Uh, And here's one place that the famous Dunning-Kruger effect comes in. Ah. Now, uh, you you may have heard about the Dunning-Kruger effect, but a very short sketch on it. It, of course, overlaps with a lot of what we're talking about today. Participants less skilled in a task or subject area can be prone to show even greater overestimation of their abilities in that skill or subject area. So with some skills, the worse you are, the more you overestimate your awesomeness. 
Now, why why on earth would this be? Well, the authors here mention this could just simply come from your low skills providing you with a poor frame of reference. You don't know enough about this task or skill or subject area to even understand how much you don't know. So like the Dunning-Kruger effect would show not self-deception but genuine ignorance. You lack enough information to understand how bad you're failing. Like I think a, a good example of this is, you know, you read you, you, you read one theory about some uh, phenomena mm-hmm. and, uh, and it can be rather convincing. It can be so convincing that you think, well, this is it. They made a great case. Yeah. But if you, don't, uh, if, if you don't actually look at some of the other theories out there or look at uh, you know, some sort of uh, – if you look at writings or, or, or pieces that actually compare them or do some sort of meta-analysis, yeah. then you don't really have a proper frame of reference or even like sort of – I wouldn't even say like a – nothing like a perfect frame of reference, but even say like a healthy frame of reference. Yes, you can go – so like you read one article about a subject and then you're an expert. Right. And then you start reading more and you realize like, oh, wait a minute. You know, there's so much I don't understand. And yeah. your estimation of your own expertise drops sharply after like, that. Yeah, you know, like you might realize, oh, well, there are other theories or you might realize, oh, well, this was just one person's uh, summary of this particular mm-hmm. theory. And oh, and then on top of that, perhaps they had a particular axe to grind in writing it, et cetera. Yeah, that, that's a great example. I mean, not to say that you should doubt everything you read, but I mean, yeah, you should have uh, – Well, you should, you should have healthy doubt, not right. like, you know, not denialism. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, just uh, be aware that you don't know everything. And you should be especially suspicious when you have dipped your toes into a subject mm-hmm. and now feel that you fully understand it. Right. And we say that as uh, professional toe dippers. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, now, finally, uh, they point out that the empirical evidence for wishful thinking itself in general as a psychological phenomenon, they say this is not actually strong. Uh, if if there were strong evidence for wishful thinking, wouldn't it be the case that more desirable outcomes would be more strongly believed? And they say, no, uh, studies that try to test this out do not find this to be the case. It's not the case that the more you want something, the more you believe it to be true. And, and there are only a few types of scenarios where there's any evidence of this at all, such as scenarios where all outcomes are equally likely, like a dice roll or mm. something. Now, that is interesting to think of in terms of uh, Dungeons and Dragons, oh, yeah. where frequently one is either making an attack or doing some sort of a, attempting some sort of act that requires a skill check. Mm-hmm. And I find myself doing this. You'll you go up there and you, you begin to explain what your character is going to do as if you hit that natural 20. Like that's kind of the <laughs> – Yeah. Uh, so I find myself engaging in a lot of that level of overconfidence with my character because ultimately it all comes down to the, the, the role of the dice. Mm-hmm. You know, unless I'm trying to, you know, leap off of the Demogorgon's head or something that is going to be – extremely difficult because there are going to be additional numerical, uh, you know, values, uh, uh, you know, added or subtracted from the attempt, you know, ultimately it's still going to be 1 to 20, 1 being, a, a, you know, a pretty much complete fail. Uh, you know, that's going to be the one where you slip and stab yourself with your own sword uh-huh. or it's going to be that natural 20, which is going to be, you know, the, 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 the wonder hit where you do extra damage. That is a fantastic example. I, I, I was trying to think of cases where I thought I really did engage in wishful thinking and I couldn't think. I'm sure I do sometimes, mm-hmm. but yeah. Uh, they say it's not actually as common as people think it is and here's maybe one case. Yeah, I think in Dungeons & Dragons, I I have yet to meet a player or be a player 
that does not engage in wishful thinking every time you roll the dice. Like nobody, nobody rolls that dice and, and says, all right, this is how I'm going to fall off this table <laughs> or this is how I'm going to um, uh, fall into the next trap and, uh, and, you know, and skewer myself on a stake. No, we want the best outcome and we, we have it in our mind uh, before the dice uh, puts us in our place. Now, another thing that the authors here bring up is that uh, overestimation itself, remember again, that's just thinking that you are better than you are in some way in terms of abilities or traits or something, um, that this actually has a mixed evidential record. It's not always the case that we overestimate ourselves on all qualities or tasks. It's more the case for some things in particular and they give a couple of examples of things where there really is a ton of evidence for consistent overestimation. One is something you brought up in the last episode, Robert, the planning fallacy. Mm -hmm. There is really good evidence that people consistently overestimate how fast they'll be able to get things done or complete a project of some kind. And this is especially true if the project is difficult and novel. So like if I, I try to, you know, I put together some complex thing for you to do that's hard and you've never done it before, you are really likely to massively underestimate how much time it's going to take you. Right. If you're like, well, you know, I'm not a handyman, but I think I'm going to install this sink myself. Uh -huh. <laughs> And then you watch a weekend just vanish. Yep. I know that feeling. Uh, another one that they cite is the illusion of control. People pretty consistently overestimate how much control they, were, they will have over future outcomes. Even things that, that they should understand are basically random. Right. You see this uh, financially and business-wise a yeah. lot of times where someone will have – they think they have a clear idea of like how things are going to flow, but they're they're just not taking into account all the factors they cannot control uh, in say the economy or uh, you know or 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 just the the industry that they're a part of. Uh, but they're kind of they're acting, they're making choices based on sort of like a not even a best case scenario, but sort of like a standard scenario, you know. Yeah, yeah, I think I know what you mean. Like they're, they're not counting on the storm and they're also uh -huh. not counting on the wind to completely die away. And that's how they're basing you know, their, their estimate of how long it's going to take to sail across the, the, the sea. Oh, yeah. I mean that, that's another thing. Like we – there's actually a name for this. I've forgotten it at the moment. Uh, maybe I'll call it to mind in a second. But uh, it's the, the assumption that the future will be like the present. Yeah. Maybe it's called the continuation fallacy or something. Yeah. Um, but now there's one more thing that they bring up with respect to overestimation specifically, uh, and this is a, a standard finding that applies to a lot of the research on overestimation. It's called the hard easy distinction or the hard easy effect. And uh, th this one is interesting because we'll see some variations with it in other types of overconfidence. But it goes like this. We are more likely to overestimate our abilities on hard tasks and underestimate our abilities on easy ones. Hmm. So again, like the hard project comes up uh, with the planning fallacy, you massively underestimate how much time it's going to take you to do that hard, complex novel thing. But then you might overestimate how much time it's going to take you to do something that's a common, easy task. Hmm. I guess the, the main example that's coming to mind on this one would be the scenario where driving across town or going to a particular destination takes mm -hmm. less time than you think it will mm -hmm. and then you show up like 15 minutes early yeah. or, or worse. Yeah, and the authors here have some explanations for how exactly this is working that we'll get to in a bit. Should we take a break? Yes, we should. And when we come back, we will continue our journey through overconfidence. All right, we're back. 
All right. So we've been talking about uh, this paper about overconfidence, about the three types of overconfidence by uh, Schatz and Moore. We were just talking about overestimation, the belief that you're better than you are, especially with respect to some kind of objective measure or independent measure. And so we want to move on to the next type of overconfidence they talk about, which is overplacement. And again, this is different from overestimation because this is thinking that you're better than you are with respect to other people, judging yourself compared to others. Now, the authors have some methodological critiques uh, of some of the literature here, but they acknowledge there's a lot of evidence for overplacement, citing the better-than-average effect in all its beastly forms, like in the uh, other paper that we talked about that was you know, recently found to be extremely robust. Uh, they've got some quibbles about methodology in some of these studies, like using ambiguous scales or measures. Robert, you were talking, I think, in the last episode about you know how some of these types of things, like uh, you know how people rate themselves in terms of attractiveness yeah. or intelligence or something, these can of course suffer from ambiguous criteria. All right, yeah, or sometimes just straight up unfair criteria, racist criteria, um, misogynistic criteria, etc. Well, yeah, it absolutely has the, all those negative effects. I mean, I, I think overplacement is like it's behind a lot of the worst types of prejudices that make themselves known. But uh, e even if you're just like looking at what is the quality you're trying to measure, you know, uh, uh, attractiveness mm -hmm. or something like that, the, there's usually not like a, a way of rating that. It's, it's all based on these kind of ambiguous subjective judgments. One, one great example of this is something that we've brought up several times already, like uh, – it, the driving example. So Svensson in 1981 did a study where uh, he discovered that 93 percent of American drivers rated themselves above the median in driving ability. Obviously, whatever criterion you use, it's impossible for 93 percent to be above the median. It would have to be, you know, like 50 percent. Um, the majority can be above average, but the majority cannot be above the median. And the authors point out this would be more impressive if it were more specific because due to this problem with like ambiguous scales or measures, anybody could technically have their own definition of what makes a good driver. Right. So you could be answering that thinking like, well, there are things that I do well when I drive and maybe they're different from what somebody else thinks that they do well when they drive and that's their criterion. Right. I mean, your your definition of being a good driver could just be I did not, you know, I wasn't in a wreck on the way to work this morning, you know, or right. or it could be I get the places I need to go fast. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it could, and those are those are, are definitely, uh, you know, not necessarily the same vision of good driving or I look really cool when I do it. You know, yeah. Uh, there's another thing they bring up which is interesting, which is the uh, the role of self-selection in increasing the apparent prevalence of overconfidence in the real world. So an example would be like this. On average, more overconfident people are likely to apply for jobs, just sort of by definition, right? Uh, more overconfident people are likely to start businesses, to run for office. So we're we're exposed to more of these people and this could lead to us thinking that their confidence level is more represented in the general population than it actually is. Oh, yeah. You turn on the television. It's what? It's almost exclusively overly confident people. That's true. Yeah. So if you just look at like business leadership, politics, celebrities, Reality, television, yeah, yeah. all this, you're going to see – I think you will see in general way more overconfidence than you just will talking to your friends and relatives and coworkers. Yeah. Now, here's a really interesting thing. Remember we talked about the hard-easy effect or the easy-hard effect with uh, overestimation where people tend to overestimate their abilities on hard jobs 
and underestimate their abilities on easy jobs. Apparently, for overplacement, it's there's also an easy hard effect, but it's in the exact opposite direction. With overplacement, you overplace yourselves. Uh, we overplace ourselves relative to others on easy, common tasks, and underplace ourselves relative to others on difficult, unusual, or rare ones. So, again, what would be some examples of this? Uh, you think you're in the 90th percentile of drivers, but really you're in the 40th. This is an easy, common task. Uh, on the other hand, people think that they are less likely than others to win difficult competitions. Uh, studies show that when there's a teacher that decides to uh, make an exam harder and grade it on a curve, students expect their grades to be worse than others, even when there's common knowledge that there will be a curve. So as the test gets harder, students perceive that they will do worse relative to other classmates. That's mm. kind of interesting. Uh, they point out that people believe they are worse jugglers than other people. <laughs> they believe that they are less likely to win the lottery than other people. Again, a difficult, rare thing. Thing. Uh, and that they – here's, here's a, a very interesting version just in terms of ages. People believe they are less likely than other people to live past 100, but they also think they're more likely than other people to live past 70. Interesting. Well, of course, both of those kind of depends on where you are in the age spectrum when you're making that estimation, mm -hmm. you know, because you could be – I mean, I mean, it, but apparently and, it's true of all ages. Yeah, yeah. but all, and also your quality of life, right? I mean, right. for some people, the prospect of living to a hundred, uh, depending on where you are health wise, that might be terrifying. That might be it might be wishful thinking that you'll expire sooner than that, uh, or it could be the other way around. You know. Um, what kind of explanations are they, they they throwing out? Yeah, this was interesting. So, yeah, why do we fail in opposite directions here depending on whether we're imagining our performance against objective measures versus relative to others? And the authors cite solutions from some of Moore's previously uh, previous work with other authors. They write this, quote, if people make any errors estimating how well they've done or will do, then it stands to reason they're more likely to overestimate a low score and more likely to underestimate a high score. That's the hard, easy effect. As long as people have more uncertainty about others' scores, they'll tend to make even more regressive estimates of others than of self. The consequence would be that they overestimate others even more than themselves on difficult tasks and come to believe that they are worse than others. The opposite would hold true for easy tasks. People would underestimate others more than themselves and wind up believing that they are better than others. So it, that took me a minute to get my head around, but then I finally made sense of it. So when you're not sure how you will do at something, as we're always you know, not sure, there's a ton of uncertainty in life or you're not sure how others will do, there's simply more room for possibility to guess high if your performance is likely to be low and more room to guess low if your performance is likely to be high. And this applies to both the self and other people. Since we know even less about other people than we do about ourselves, we're going to spend more time guessing wrong in these vast over and under zones for other people depending on what type of task it is. Now we're going to talk about uh, overprecision from this uh, 2017 study. Now overprecision again is that that's like having way more confidence than you should about 
what you believe to be true. So I could ask you, you know, I could ask you to answer a question, then I could ask you how confident you are that your answer is correct. Uh, and uh, the authors here write, quote, Results routinely find that hit rates inside 90% confidence intervals are below 50%, implying that people set their ranges too precisely, acting as if they are inappropriately confident that their beliefs are accurate. So if you take a quiz, you say you're more than 90% confident on average about your answers, and you're actually more like 50% correct on average. Mm -hmm. This is something that's been found a bunch of times. It's quite clear that there's tons of overprecision in, in human behavior. Uh, the authors have a few critiques about like common research paradigms that, that are used to study this. One example is they say, you know, it, it may be that normal people don't have a very solid understanding of how to use confidence intervals. So there have been other ways of trying to measure it. Uh, but however, the, the authors here believe that overprecision is the most pervasive form of overconfidence. You find it absolutely ever, everywhere, even in experts talking about their own subject matter. I think that's come up on the show before that I don't remember when. After this, the authors here turn to the question, uh, a question we talked about a little before, could overconfidence actually be useful? Like, how, how do, why does it make sense for a brain to be overconfident? Uh, and they talk about explanations in two main categories, intrapersonal and interpersonal. Uh, the authors generally think the evidence for the interpersonal explanations, the, the explanations in how it works on other people are stronger than the intrapersonal ones, though there could, could be some good intrapersonal ones. For example, you know, maybe overconfidence doesn't just make you feel good. It, as we hypothesized earlier, makes you more likely to take risks that can pay off big. Yeah. Well, I mean, for instance, to come to, to go to a, like a predator prey scenario, mm -hmm. like one is reminded of um, the, um, the you know how effective your average predator is. Right. You know they are going to fail a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and granted, a, a leopard is not really subject to human uh, you know overconfidence or underconfidence. But certainly, if you if you if you look at a human scenario, if you look at human hunters. Uh, you know, it, it's certainly a situation where it would pay to be overconfident mm -hmm. uh, to a certain degree. Yeah, I think you can find some analogies of confidence and overconfidence in animals. Like, you know, how likely are you to try to take down a, a prey animal that you're very unlikely to succeed against, yeah. but, you know, would provide you with a lot of meat and energy if you do. Right. Though, of course, the reverse, the, the other side of that is that you would not need want to be so overconfident that you were going after prey that was extremely likely to kill you if you tried to, to bring it down. Right. Uh, but the authors here, they do think that there's really good evidence for interpersonal benefits for overconfidence. Confidence. One example would be all the empirical evidence that already exists that just outwardly projecting confidence has all these benefits affecting how other people see us. There are studies that show that highly confident people are more persuasive. They're more influential. They're perceived as more sexually attractive. They tend to get promoted to positions of authority in groups. Um, and it's possible that confidence is actually more important than competence in determining who gets promoted to high-status positions. The authors write, quote, While a preference for confident leaders may make sense if there's a correlation, however weak, between confidence and competence, there is real risk in selecting overconfident leaders. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, because on one hand, you, you want a boss that can say, you know, do their job and, and keep the company afloat and, and actually grow the business, et cetera, all the various catchphrases. Mm -hmm. But you also want a boss that you can kind of like, you, you, can, you can trust that they're doing their thing. Like they, they seem confident, 
I'm, uh, I guess they have their whole end of it figured out and maybe I can focus on my own thing and not my own role in the company without you know, freaking out about what's going to happen tomorrow. Well, maybe in the business scenario, we should pivot to talking about the Icarus paradox. Oh, sure. All right. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more. And we're back. So, Robert, you wanted to uh, bring in a concept from the business world about overconfidence, the Icarus paradox. Yeah, and and I'm as surprised as maybe some of you are that I'm bringing in a, something business-wise. Uh, but it, it caught my attention when I was looking for things on uh, – uh, for papers and so forth on overconfidence and also looking at, at Greek mythology and so forth because, yeah, the Icarus paradox invokes the story of Icarus rather directly. Right. And I think it also makes sense on another level because, you know, we don't have gods uh, so much anymore. Like these are not the, the driving, uh, commanding forces in our world. But we do have institutions, industries, global economies. And, and these are not unlike the concepts of the gods, right? You know, they're sometimes lawful, sometimes chaotic entities that are likely to destroy you if you question their authority or if you, uh, you, you turn against them. Uh, but anyway, I ran across this interesting concept of the Icarus Paradox. Uh, it was devised by Canadian economist Danny Miller. And he points out that businesses are often like uh, Icarus in the myth. They start out confident and competent. They rise, but then they perish. Uh, the, the irony, he writes, is that many of the most dramatically successful companies are prone to this exact sort of failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it doesn't – in the business sense, since businesses uh, are sometimes less likely to die, they're more like the gods. You know, they're, right. They have downfalls, but there may be – they may very well be immortal in some cases. Right. They're still alive. They're just chained to a rock getting their liver pecked out by an eagle. Right. Yeah. For eternity. You know, maybe yeah. they just you know, declare multiple bankruptcies. Immortal declares bankruptcy. <laughs> it's a different thing than a, than a corporation doing it. <laughs> Um, Wait, what is that eagle? It's like a private equity eagle. Yeah, the private <laughs> equity eagle. Um, and yeah, he mentioned several companies in discussing this, and, and most of them, I think, that he was discussing are still around. Like they have survived their downfalls. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, he writes that the irony is that that many of the, these dramatically successful companies are prone to these sort of failures. And what's more, the very factors that drive success, when taken to excess, are the factors that bring about decline. Hmm. So I think this is an interesting model to look at, not only for the you know because it's a just a take on it from the business world, but I think it can also serve as sort of a reflecting pool for some of the individual concepts that we've discussed already by placing them outside of the human psyche and looking at them in the context of an organization or a culture. Yeah. So uh, Miller wrote a, a 1990 book about this, The Icarus Paradox, How Exceptional Companies Bring About Their Own Downfall, New Lessons in the Dynamics of Corporate Success, Decline, and Renewal. I know you love a long title like that. Um, <laughs> but uh, I also uh, – I was mainly looking at his uh, 1992 Business uh, Horizons article uh, that he wrote on the subject and he summarizes a lot of the key uh, points. Mm-hmm. So Miller identified four key tra- trajectories uh, in the riches to rags uh, business scenario. Mm-hmm. So the first one that he mentions is the focusing trajectory. In this trajectory, uh, the craftsman becomes the tinkerer. Quote, firms whose insular technocratic monocultures alienate customers with perfect but irrelevant offerings. So uh, I guess in a scenario would be, you know, the company that creates a really groundbreaking product 
and then all they do is tinker with that concept. All they do is make adjustments to that concept. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually, like somebody else is going to create a, a better widget or a better you know, smartphone or whatever the situation may be. Mm-hmm. Somebody else is going to take some, some, you know, some wider swings. Uh, next comes the venturing trajectory. And this is uh, by which builders become imperialist. And this one, I think, is the one that really has the smack of overconfidence to it. Uh, in this trajectory, the strategy of building feeds into overexpansion. Uh, the goal of growth becomes grandeur. And an entrepreneurial culture becomes one of the gamesmen. Uh, a divisionalized structure becomes fractured. Hmm. And uh, then on top of that, there's the in, the inventing trajectory. This is where you go from pioneering to escapist. In this trajectory, innovation feeds into high-tech escapism. Science for society transforms into technological utopianism. Research and development gives way to think tank culture, and the overall culture goes from organic to chaotic. Hmm. And then he rounds this out with the decoupling trajectory, from salesman to drifter. <laughs> Quote, finally, the decoupling trajectory transforms salesmen, organizations with unparalleled marketing skills, prominent brand names, and broad markets into aimless bureaucratic drifters whose sales fetish obscures design issues and who produce a stale and disjointed line of Me Too offerings. Okay, so that's the company that's more based around marketing culture than around having a good product. Right. You know, thinking about these trajectories kind of reminds me of the peaking in high school stereotype in life trajectories. Yeah. It's a stereotype, but there is some truth to it. I I think it's possible that too much success early on in life can kind of corrupt a person. It can kind of corrupt your work ethic, your ability to learn from mistakes and mature. It's important for people to experience both successes and failures early in life. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Uh, it kind of comes back to what we talked about going, looking at uh, considering Aristotle's uh, summary of hubris, saying that yeah. the uh, the young and the rich were the most likely to engage in it. Yeah. And the idea that perhaps in some scenarios, certainly there, there are plenty of examples of very wealthy people who got there through defeat, like through learning the lessons of defeat. Mm-hmm. There are also examples of of people who have, you know, arguably maybe, you know, n- never suffered a true defeat. Like they have they have remained sort of man-children. Uh, kind of failed upward. Yeah, know. that sort of thing. Uh, and again, we're, we're dealing in broad tropes here. But, you know, to, to, to some extent, I think it's useful to consider uh, to consider these. Um, but but also I feel like it, it does get too into the idea that um, – that when we're dealing with the trajectory of a of a human life, you know, um, uh, part of it is perhaps comes down to just our ability to forecast the future, our ability to make long to engage in long term planning. Like we're we're as humans, we're generally not as good about that. We're certainly not good about planning beyond uh, you know the scope of a human life, but. But even like beyond the, the scope of a, of a few years, we're better at the, the, the short-term goals. Yeah. And it's only with considerable effort that we, we get better at considering long-term goals. Um, so I think that's important to keep in mind in all of this. Now, now, one thing that I think is also interesting in Miller's writings is that he talks he he, he talks a bit about overconfidence, you know, as a symptom of underlying is, issues, you know, as, as as opposed to being like an intrinsic quality. Uh, he writes. Unfortunately, configuration and synergy are usually attained at the cost of myopia. Stellar performers view the world through narrowing telescopes. One point of view takes over. One set of assumptions comes to dominate. The result is complacency and overconfidence. 
And uh, I think that plays into a lot of what, what we've uh, we, we spoke about earlier, you know. Sorry, I'm trying to make sense of it given that it's got the word synergy in it. Yeah. <laughs> I should know what that means by now. I've purged it from my brain. Oh, okay. I see now. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the quote. Okay, so no, this is this is a very standard thing. Uh, you know, if you have successfully uh, hammered several nails in everything, and you've still got the hammer, everything really starts to look like a nail. Yeah. Uh, just because, like, if you've had success with the strategy in the past, you don't switch. You just keep doing what you've done before, even if it doesn't make sense anymore. Like, yeah. This is the this is what works. This is what our product is. Yeah. And this is what we're going to stick to. Um, and, and then, yeah, he talks a good bit about uh, to do about overconfidence as just a result of success, writing, quote, failure teaches leaders valuable lessons, but good results only reinforce their preconceptions and tether them more firmly to their tried and true recipes. Success also makes managers overconfident, more prone to excess and neglect, and more given to shape strategies to reflect their own preferences rather than those of the customers. Yeah. And uh, you know, he also points uh, to one of the key aspects of the Icarus paradox being that overconfident, complacent executives extend the very factors that contributed to success to the point where they cause decline. So the thing that's working, the you know, the button we're pushing. That is leading to success. Let's just really jam that sucker. You're like the rat in the experiment that keeps pushing the cocaine button. Yeah. So uh, he summarizes that there are really two aspects of the Icarus paradox. One is that success can lead to failure via the fostering of overconfidence and other factors. And then two, the aspects of a business that bring success can also hasten failure or, quote, the very causes of success when extended may become the causes of failure. And as far as, uh, you know, ways to fight these transformations, because that's one one question I had. It's like, is this just the trajectory? This is what happens. Like, yeah. this is – things can't just go up forever. Uh, and a business cannot just exist, uh, you know, indefinitely. Like, things have to die, right? I mean, uh, these corporations are not like, you know, mortals, but they are given to life and death. They are not eternal. Uh, and, and he says – he argues that there are ways to fight these transformations. Uh, he suggests self-reflection and intelligence gathering that guards against excess overconfidence and irrelevance. Uh, and, and this this I think matches up with what we've been talking about so far on the individual level. Like, yeah. like if you think you're you're gracious, like take a step back and 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 uh, and and think and question whether you know you actually are to what extent you are, what else you could be doing to ensure that 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 you were actually living up to your overestimation of self. If you think it's true about yourself, prove it. Prove it to you. Yeah, I have to say Miller was a is is a is a really good writer about all this because normally I'm not interested in business <laughs> culture type stuff like this. Uh, but but he does a great job of like tying it back into just the, the basic human scenario as well. Like like he points out that excellence. In, in any human endeavor, be it arts or sports or what have you, you know, it tends to come at a price. We cannot excel at everything. We have to make sacrifices and choose what's important. In a middle of the road or a jack of all trades approach is not going to lead to greatness, you mm-hmm. know, unless it's a story or some fable where greatness is just 100 percent thrust upon somebody, you know, uh, you, you, there's got to be some sort of um, a trade off there. Yeah. And, you, and he says it goes for the individual, but it also applies to companies as well. You can only sharpen your blade if you first realize that it is dull and must be sharpened. Right. You know, like if, if you if you believe yourself eternally and infinitely sharp, you're not going to do the sharpening. Right. And it's interesting to come back and think about the individual level and think about overconfidence in this scenario. Like one like basic trope he mentions is the idea of, say, 
you know, the artist who neglects their family to focus on their art or a business person that does the same thing. Mm-hmm. In those scenarios, might it be, you know, I, I guess in a maybe in a warped sense or in a way that 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 caters to their their prime focus, might it be beneficial to just think, oh, I'm a good dad, I'm a good husband, even when they're not, but it enables them to then put all of their, more of their resources anyway, into the pursuit of the thing that ultimately matters to them, like, you know, card, hard, cold cash or the pursuit of art. Yeah, well, so uh, to be clear, obviously this wouldn't mean that it's actually useful in being a good person no. or having <laughs> a good life, but it may very well be useful in focusing on whatever it is that really matters to you, to be overconfident about your your crappy uh, efforts in other areas of life, right? Yeah, I, I think that's entirely true. So it's it's yeah, it's, it's interesting to compare the the two, the the corporate version of this and the individual version of this. And certainly, if you want to read more about uh, this idea of the uh, the Icarus paradox, um, I certainly recommend uh, checking out more of his writings. So we have all these economic metaphors like, you know, from Adam Smith, the invisible hand or whatever. Uh-huh. I feel like we need an economic metaphor of the nemesis. Yeah. Like the nemesis that is this uh, force in the market that swoops in to punish hubris and overconfidence in business. Yeah. Sometimes it seems like nemesis is a little <laughs> a, a little uh, resistant to doing that. I don't oh, know. Yeah. I mean part of it comes <laughs> down again to the fact that, that businesses and corporations are, are – are less mortal. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it is funny that uh, we've discussed a lot in these episodes how overconfidence can both lead to disaster and and negative outcomes, but can also in some cases be highly rewarded and be yeah. very lucrative. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I'm also reminded – talking about, uh, you know, curbing overconfidence or the perception of overconfidence by making statements that cannot be uh, put to the test – you, of course, see that a lot in the business world, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, you know, the, if, if you're saying you're the best car dealership in the galaxy, you know, that you can get away with. Saying you're the best car dealership in town, well, then people can say, well, let's see your sales numbers. Let's well, compare you to gyms across town. No, even that would be easier to get away with. Like the one that would be hard to get away with is saying like we have the lowest prices in town that's or right. something like that. Then you're like, oh, then you're stuck. Either that's true or that's not. Right. But then again, on a personal, the personal level, you know, you can have your mug that says "World's Greatest Dad," <laughs> right? And nobody's going to call you on that. What you going to get out your dad ruler and measure me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So I think we've we've reached the end of our discussion here for the week on overconfidence. Uh, but clearly, there's a there's a lot of material here. Uh, it, it'll be interesting to hear back from listeners because I think we all have some perspective on this. We all have experience with. With overconfidence in others or uh, certainly in overconfidence in ourselves or the management of overconfidence in ourselves. And so we'd, we'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on this. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find them wherever you find your podcasts. If you go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com, that will lead you over to the iHeart listing for our show. But you can find us anywhere. And wherever that happens to be, just make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. That really helps us out. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, just to say hey, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
Thank you.